What song did Lady Macbeth sing while washing her hands? Why would you call something sweet bread when it's made out of glands? You never quite know what's going to hit a nerve on this show. Always some fucking thing, though. <laughs> but this month, Helen, we've received uh, many impassioned emails about pizza cutters. Ah, oh, I suppose I should have seen that coming, given that we had two questions the same episode about pizza cutters. Paul, in Hong Kong, has been so moved by this subject, Helen, that despite being, he says, a long-time listener, this is the first time he's written in. He says, I recently heard your segment about pizza slicing techniques and regional etiquette. I was fully expecting my tried-and-tested method to be discussed, and I cannot, he says, in good conscience, leave this out of the debate. Debate? I don't frame things as a debate, Paul. It's a discussion. It seems like a strong term for what we did, yeah. Lower than discussion. I mean, like somewhere between bants and chat, I would call it. Chance. <laughs> but. But anyway, here's his contribution. I'm going to solve everyone's problems with two words. Pizza scissors. That's not solving the problems because the first was a question from people who are out and about and would you expect them to carry pizza scissors on their holiday in London? Unrealistic. The second question was from someone who already had a rotary pizza cutter. They weren't saying, what's an alternative tool that means this problem will not exist? They were like, what do I do specifically with my non-scissors rotary cutter? That's true. I guess he's not saying this is something we should have given as advice to the questionnaire who had written in, but advice that we should have imparted to the listenership at whole to prevent them ever buying a rotary pizza blade because he has found pizza scissors so incredibly useful. I and mean, what you're not thinking, Paul, is that all of the people who are using pizza scissors, if this works, they don't need to write to us to ask how to cut a pizza. No, but he wants to spread the word, Helen. I mean, that's not how evangelism works, is it? You're not like, oh, everyone who believes in Jesus is saved, so I just won't tell anyone. I've seen pizza scissors in pizza restaurants. Other people are on the pizza scissor train, Paul. Well, what he says is, I've had a dedicated set of pizza scissors since university when times were harder and my resourcefulness was higher. Mm. People said I was insane, disgusting, wasteful, pointless. Innovators are just often not appreciated in their lifetimes, Paul. That's right. I really don't see how any of this applies. Agreed. You've got two knives, which are really easy to coordinate. I mean, he's basically now describing scissors. That's the shtick. <laughs> they eliminate the issue of smudging the toppings around. Well, it's more that they'd like chomp the toppings between their blades, but okay. Uh, it's no more difficult to wash them than two knives. Mm. I take issue with that, actually. Yep. Far more difficult to sharpen them as well. You usually have to take them to a shop. And I find stuff sticks to scissors round about the half moon very frequently. Yep. Like, you know, if you're if you're doing a quick sponge off, you've got to allow, I would say, an extra 50% cleaning time for scissors than knives. It's not that I'm dismissing them, Paul. I just think that you've gone pizza scissor evangelist at the expense of some of the practicalities. You know, none of the methods are perfect. I think like a lot of people who are truly of faith, they're blind to some of the contradictions, aren't they? They're not, they're not willing to engage with some of the uh, discussion, or as you'd frame it, Paul, debate. I think he says, these arguments are solid, and I have never looked back. <laughs> He's living his best life. My only request is that you give it a go before you pass judgment. How do you know I haven't, Paul? It just wasn't relevant to what we were being asked last time. But... I'll say my personal experience is never having had a particularly acute problem in cutting a pizza <laughs> using a knife or a rotary cutter. That's true. Uh, I have used scissors in food preparation. Uh, and they're pretty common, like in a lot of cultures. Uh, like if I go to a Korean restaurant, they often snip up things with scissors at the table. I've seen Nigella snipping a spring onion into a broth. Right, you snip a spring onion, snip some chives with scissors. But when I was growing up, we had meat scissors for like snipping up the backbone of a chicken when it's mm. raw i do have some resentment though towards food scissors and this is based on an incident many many years ago a flatmate's partner was cooking in our place and used my specific sewing scissors to cut up bacon oh firstly that's a hygiene problem raw bacon Yes. Also, sewing scissors, you're only supposed to use them for fabric. Like, if you use them on other substances, they get blunted. Like, you shouldn't use them on paper. You need to keep those scissors specifically for fabric. And I don't know if bacon would have compromised the blades in that way. But still, the principle is sewing scissors for sewing. Bring your own bacon scissors if you must. Anyway, I have tried cutting pizza with scissors at Paul's request, actually, because I, I did have uh, pizza this weekend after we received this email. So I thought I'd give it a go, to be fair. Yeah. It's his only request. Um, and here's the issue, Paul. 
when the pizza is hot, you're picking up something that's too hot to handle. Whereas if you're using a knife or a pizza wheel cutter, then mm-hmm. obviously you don't have to touch the underside, which is hotter than the top sometimes. That's the issue. Good point. So I, I see what you're saying. Certainly fine for the next day when you put the takeaway in the fridge. Not sure that straight out the oven pizza scissors are the best solution. Sorry. Uh, here's another pizza-related question from someone who has kept themselves anonymous, but to say that they are from Israel. They say, I was recently discussing getting a pizza with a friend when she happened to mention that her Swedish husband puts banana on his pizza. Oh, I can feel Paul sharpening his blades in disgust. He's got his banana scissors ready. (laughs) After seeing the look of shock and disgust on my face, she promptly promised me that this is a normal thing to do in Sweden. I can imagine a lot of things are normal in Sweden that aren't in Israel, like... um, cross-country skiing (laughs) this bizarre food combo is the second weirdest i've come across the first being when i was served a starter of tuna and grapefruit at a friday night dinner in london imagine tuna mayo with big flakes of grapefruit throughout well actually i at least see how the flavors could work together yeah i do i mean they're not my favorite flavors but i can imagine it ollie answer me this have you ever tried banana on pizza the swedish delicacy (laughs) no and What's the weirdest and maybe surprisingly tasty food combo you've ever had? Okay, well, I mean, in pizza terms, this is a classic uh, conversation, this, but I am a staunch defender of the Hawaiian. Like, you know, that is something that's on the, it's on the menu, isn't it? But a lot of people take issue with the idea of tinned pineapple, cheese and ham being a combination that anyone could tolerate. But for whatever reason, you know, I don't know if it's my palate. I find that a pleasurable food combination and I don't see what the fuss is about there. What you've got there is that ham goes well with fruit. Like pork generally mm. pairs well with fruit and cheese kind of goes well with a zingy fruit. It's a chutney analogue. Maybe there it's truly the tomato that is throwing people off. Yeah. Well, it's interesting what you say about cheese there because, again, I don't think it's weird to combine things with cheese for all the reasons you just said. I think cheese goes with anything, but perhaps some people would find some of the things that I've put with cheese to be questionable. And things like marmalade, roast vegetables, pickles... Like any leftovers, basically, can be enhanced with cheese, in my view. I suppose banana kind of mimics the texture of cheese on a pizza. It'll just get soft during cooking and its flavour will largely be obliterated by the cookery process or by the stronger flavoured ingredients that accompany yeah. it. I mean, I think with pizza, like, it's normally the bland ingredients that are worse. Yeah, chicken. Yeah, chicken on a pizza. Ooh. It's just chicken and cheese and dough. That's just the most boring things. There's nothing there to provide contrast or interest. It doesn't mean that it's actively bad. It's just a bit dull, isn't it? I must say, I'm not interested in trying banana pizza for any other reason than having said that I've tried it. Like, that does sound pretty rank, actually. Don't you think? Would you uh, try banana pizza? To me, it's the tomato and the banana combination, again, that yeah. becomes disturbing. Yeah. But I can see how it might work. And also, it depends, like... Are you going for a really ripe sweet banana or is it more like a kind of plantain type of textural you element? A, you cooked a really nice uh, banana curry, which was like a tomato yes. base with like a, a, a battered banana. That was delicious. So maybe that would work on a pizza. No, that was good because um, it was a slightly sour tomato sauce. In my collection of off-putting 20th century cookbooks, I noticed a recipe in 282 ways of making a salad for salmon and banana salad which wasn't a combination that appealed to me enough to try it but it's my own prejudice i'm fascinated by the idea that pre-buzzfeed anyone would have come up with such a random number for the amount of salads to grace the title page of a book yeah do you think they just ran out of ideas at 283 they're so close to 300 yeah exactly but maybe if they like stopped at 250 it would have seemed like they were just trying to make up the numbers but contrived when you have 282 it's like this is the perfect you know every salad in this deserves to be here because it's not a round number but what is the weirdest and surprisingly tasty food combo you've ever had ollie i'm trying to think now because i guess when i eat them and it is tasty i don't think it's that weird anymore Mm. well exactly yeah one person's weird is another person's conventional isn't it i remember being in tuscany with martin's family and martin's dad who dislikes what he calls pudding with his mains (laughs) ordered a savory pasta dish that had strawberries in it Uh uh-huh what else would he turn puddings with his mains? I'm curious now. Duck a l'orange or... Yeah, you know, right. apples with roast pork or something like that. Yeah, we're so conditioned, aren't we, in the idea that the sweet course comes last, which uh, my understanding is is basically a Victorian idea, and before that, like, it was anything goes. Right, exactly. You might die by pudding. Have it now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, here's a question from Brooke in Dallas, Texas, who says, My husband and I live in a fourplex... Uh, which is basically a big house with two downstairs units and two upstairs units. Mm -hmm. 
A month or so into sheltering in place, I started noticing bits of watermelon scattered about our shared backyard. Yeah, it's, it's a lesser-known COVID symptom. <laughs> <laughs> a few weeks later, I pulled up the blinds to let some sunshine in. You don't need to explain why pulling up the blinds, Brooke. That's, you know, that's pretty textbook. Only to see more melons and orange scraps all along the side yard. Oh, at some point, some fruit scraps were even sitting on our window ledges, rotting away. Nasty. Today, after months of mystery fruit, I finally witnessed fruit being chucked out the window of the upstairs unit, falling on the ground right outside our windows. Now, I don't think that months of it, this could have been your first suspicion that it was coming from upstairs. Can it, Brooke? Did you think it was being sprinkled from heaven above? Maybe she thought there was like... You know, sometimes like when exotic birds escape mm. from a zoo or someone's private collection, and maybe as they fly over, you know, people hope against hope, don't they? You just you just hope it wouldn't be your neighbour that you share a building with that would be chucking disgusting used fruit slices all over the lawn. You come up with a, a, a kind of alternative suggestion, however ludicrous, might seem more comforting. Everywhere in Dallas has been seeing watermelon showers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where we live at the moment is a street away from the sea and sometimes you see like a crab shell on the street and I've always assumed that was a seagull just carrying it and dropping it but now I guess it's the neighbours. Maybe she says it's just because I'm home nearly 24-7 nowadays but I found myself enraged enough to knock on my own window oh. as if the guy upstairs would be able to hear me. Oh, Brooke, <laughs> you're too good for this world. Yeah, not, in, not enraged enough even in this acute pain to uh, actually confront them yet. The very few dealings I've had with this neighbour have been oddly tense, as he seems quite terse. Well, he sounds like kind of a selfish jerk. We've always tried to be mindful of the fact that we live in a shared space, so I wish our other neighbours were more mindful as well. That is reasonable, yes. So Helen, answer me this. Should I just dismiss this behaviour as we're thinking of moving in a year anyway? And how would you feel about it? How would you feel about it, Helen, if someone threw used watermelon rinds down on your floor? I would similarly feel like Brooke that you wish the neighbours more communally minded. Evidently, this guy isn't. So since he hasn't been particularly friendly in your previous interactions, I think you can just meet terse with terse. I think you need to go upstairs and say, you've been chucking fruit into the yard. Stop it. It's rotting. It's attracting pests, even if it isn't. I think you could say that it is because that is actually a hygiene concern. Dallas is a warm place. Yeah. And he needs to sort his shit out. Also, he might just be chucking it out the window because he's like, la, 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 it's not in my space anymore, so it doesn't exist. Like people who throw non-degradable rubbish out of their car windows. But she says that she's uh, a considerate neighbour um, and maybe she should try and analyse what's happening from his point of view. Like, why is this man throwing fruit out the window? It may be that he thinks, from his point of view, this is natural waste which will disintegrate or feed the wildlife Therefore, it doesn't matter if I throw it out my window. I mean, what, all I'm saying is maybe there's a sensitive way to approach him without storming up there and saying, you've chucked this out the window, don't do it. But that is probably it, isn't it? He's probably like, oh, yeah, it's biodegradable and like birds will eat it. Not, it's going to sit there for weeks before it degrades. Well, fruit waste takes a surprisingly long time to degrade. Right, but that's clearly something not something he's thinking about, is it? No, so it's not acceptable that he is doing this. What you could do, depends how passag you want to be about it, is gather it up in a bucket and take it up to him saying, oh, I think you dropped this. <laughs> Or buy him a compost bin. I mean, kill him with kindness. Right. I've noticed your interest in recycling fruit waste. Look, here's a present. I think if you don't want a direct confrontation with him, you could put a notice in the communal hall or on the front door or something. Yes, as if everyone's doing it. Put your name on it. Don't make it anonymous. Say, there's fruit waste in the garden. Yeah. It's rotting in the heat. It's making the garden untidy. Please don't throw things out the window into the garden. And it's impossible to do this in a way that doesn't seem like a bit dickish, but on the other hand, he's being a dick, so... Yeah. What's the worst he's going to do? Put a whole load of watermelon through your letterbox? Right. If you do get into a conversation with him, though, about the watermelon, you could always uh, persuade him to eat the rind because um, there is amino acid citrulline in it, which um, can help people with mild erectile dysfunction. You know, I don't know if he suffers from that, but that might be one of the reasons for his frustration and he's become a, a vegetable thrower. Uh, and also, it can help reduce your blood pressure, particularly if you're obese. Apparently, a way to make watermelon rinds more palatable uh, is to freeze a whole slice of watermelon, and then you can actually suck the rind like a lollipop. This neighbour is not asking for tips for what else he can do with his rind. He's clearly unconcerned about consuming the rind. I've got a question. Email your question 
To answer me this podcast at googlemail.com 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 Here's a question from Mrs. Mullins, who says, Monaco is famously a tax haven. So, Ollie, answer me this. How are services like refuse collection, schools or road maintenance paid for? Is it the case that residents are excused, say, income tax, but have higher local tax or sales taxes to compensate? I love that we've had such a boring question about Monaco, because often people are like, Monaco, glamorous, but actually, (laughs) how do the Monaco logistics work? Great question. Well, there is actually a 19.6% VAT uh, on all goods and services. Right. So that's that's not low, but actually it's not higher than France. It's set to be equal with whatever France's one is. So they do pay tax on goods and services, and they also pay inheritance tax if you leave your possessions to anyone outside of Monaco who isn't a direct descendant. And basically, if you're not leaving that to your children, that's essentially everybody because there's only 30,000 citizens of Monaco. Um, then you do get taxed on that when you die. But yeah, they don't have a huge variety of complex taxes. That is why people want to move there. And what surprises me is that they've been doing so ever since 1869. I I assumed that that the tax thing was like something from the 70s or whatever, but no, it's been going for like over 150 years now. I wonder how that compares with how a lot of other nations' taxes work. Because although tax is a very old concept, like many hundreds of years old, perhaps the way that it is meted out now is not old. Right. In fact, I mean, it's constantly being fiddled with, isn't it? I mean, you know, headline news at the moment is what is the Chancellor going to do to tax people to make up for the money they've just spent dealing with the pandemic? I mean, this is this is economic policy all over the world, isn't it? It's fiddling with taxes, whereas actually Monaco hasn't really changed their policy since 1869. So in a sense, it works. And to answer her question, how does all that stuff get paid for? The schools, the roads, the refuse collection... I mean, for a start, it is a tiny place, two square kilometres, and it's full of very rich people. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that gets paid for privately. But what does get slightly overlooked, I think, is that, yes, Monaco is a tax haven, but that doesn't mean that you move to Monaco because you believe in smaller government or something. Actually, on the contrary, because it's just one region and it has no localised government, there's just one government that rules Monaco – a lot of their infrastructure is is a state-run monopoly, effectively. (gasps) Oh, wow. So the government's constantly recouping money by you going out to bars and restaurants and nightclubs because they own them. The government owns nightclubs. Yeah, well, not just nightclubs, but I mean, most famously, the Monte Carlo Casino, which is the reason that a lot of people go to Monaco, because, you know, it's got the kind of James Bond glamour attached to it. And so if you imagine, you know, the Las Vegas Strip, instead of it being owned by the mob, or in recent years, MGM Resorts. Imagine that being owned by the Nevada government. That's how they pay their taxes, basically. And they've got loads of tourists coming in. Extraordinary. And they couldn't really be clearer uh, about the fact that their uh, local services are paid for by fleecing tourists uh, than in the naming of the company that owns all those assets, uh, which is called, uh, my French pronunciation is not amazing, but Société de Bain de Meur et du cercle de étranger, uh, which translates as company of sea bathing and of the circles from abroad. So the the, the government-run uh, company that owns the casino is called the company of the circles from abroad. In other words, we're going to fleece tourists here. And in fact, if you're a Monegasque citizen, you're banned from gambling in the casino. Really? What? Yeah, isn't that interesting? <laughs> How does that work? You're not allowed. Because then you'd be paying tax, effectively. Well, I guess the, the truth is anyone who knows a casino knows that the game is rigged. I mean, not literally, but in the sense that the odds are so against you that you don't want to be encouraging the local citizens who are benefiting from the revenues of the casino to spend their money in the casino. So they don't. They actually prohibit them. Hmm. How do you become a citizen? Like, is it just if you're rich enough, then they'll be like, yeah, all right. So becoming a Mon- Monaco resident is quite easy, comparatively, if you've got half a million pounds in the bank, then it's quite easy. If you're French, then you're always going to be a French citizen living in Monaco, and that's because they don't want French people crossing the border to avoid paying taxes. Um, but if you're not French, then you can just move to Monaco for three months or more a year, and then you don't have to pay tax, and you're a Monaco resident. But to get all the benefits of being a Monegasque citizen, 
and there are so few of them and it is passed on through the bloodline so it's a valuable thing to have it takes fucking ages like there's three steps step one you have to open a bank account and deposit 500,000 euros mm-hmm. and, and then you need a, a letter to the government saying you have enough to support yourself in the country um, then step two you need to have gone through a process of at least three different bits of paper. Like there's a temporary residency and then a longer residency and they get renewed after two and then three and then five years, I think. So you're already like seven years into the process by the time you are then ready to apply for step three, which is that you have to be over 18, lived in Monaco for a minimum of 10 continuous years, have no criminal record and prove good character. And that's the bit that's a bit dubious. Like, they don't explain what that means. Yeah, I mean, is good character contradicted by wanting to live somewhere with no personal taxation? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And also, would the monarchy of Monaco be allowed? Well, the monarchy of Monaco get to choose, ultimately, who gets the Monaco citizenship because they're all personally awarded by the prince. So um, that's the final sign-off. So so yes, I think they probably would permit themselves. But are they good character? The monarchy, actually, in Monaco is really fascinating. Prince Albert's dad, I can't remember his name now. Rainier. In around uh, 2002, he knew he was going to die because he had a terminal illness. And he also knew that Albert uh, had no children. I mean, actually, he had illegitimate children, which they found out about later. But he had no children, so there was no obvious dynastical line because um, they had a rule that the, like lots of monarchies did, to be fair, that the line of succession goes through uh, male lines, right? You, if there's a man available, then you can't have a woman. So he changed the constitution so that a woman could succeed to the throne because Albert's sisters, Caroline and Stephanie, could accede to the throne in the event of Albert's death if Albert had no children. And then, despite the fact that they changed the constitution so that a woman could ascend to the throne, <laughs> when Prince Albert had children, they were twins. The girl was born before the boy. But guess who got to be the monarch, Helen? Uh, well, he's not the monarch yet because he's still a, no, an infant. The crown prince, the heir apparent, yeah. So Jack, the boy, was born two minutes after the girl, Gabriella. But nonetheless, despite the fact his grandfather changed the constitution so that theoretically Gabriella should become the uh, crown princess, Jack became the crown prince because of the tradition that it's usually a male successor. But isn't that something that Britain did a load of ruling about before Prince George was born, yes. where it was like, if the firstborn is female, then she will succeed. Yes. Whereas before that, it was like, the first maleborn will succeed. So they're just a step behind the British monarchy, yeah. which is many steps behind how the modern world should operate. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But that, that's a crucial step behind, isn't it? Yes. I mean, yes, they're a step behind the British monarchy. But, you know, if you change the law so that a girl can become queen in the future and then decide not to make her queen, that just seems like having your cake and eating it. Well, no, because because technically they don't have to. It's not like they want to modernise because they're a fucking monarchy. So until it's enshrined into law that the firstborn will become monarch whatever the gender then they're not going to because they don't want to, fundamentally. I mean, I suppose the whole thing's slightly ridiculous in the sense that uh, if Albert was to be killed in a a car accident now, you'd have two five-year-olds who would be being considered for the throne, whereas, in fact, he does have two illegitimate children who are adults. I mean, that seems bizarre as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I suppose the whole concept of monarchy would be very different if the extramarital children of monarchs had been considered in the equation. (laughs) Well, except in the uh, Monegasque monarchy, Louis, who was the heir to the throne in 1918, um, didn't have any children, any legitimate children. And the next heir was going to be a German prince who was the Duke of Urach. And obviously, it's the end of the First World War. So France was not very keen on the idea that a German would become the king of of, uh, Monaco. So they put in a constitutional provision then that only the monarch's own children could inherit the throne. That, that's why they're in this situation now. They're not allowed to have extended family anymore in Monaco in case it's a German. And to avoid the demise of the dynasty then, Louis adopted the daughter that was born to his mistress. So there was an illegit- So Albert, I think, is the descendant of an illegitimate monarch. Because Prince Rainier, who uh, succeeded Louis, was the grandchild of Louis. Right. So he was the child of the legitimized by adoption daughter yeah i find um micro states and principalities and stuff just so hard to wrap my head around anyway Mm. Uh, this is the second smallest sovereign state in the world after the vatican 
Yeah, but I don't think of Vatican City as a real country, really. Vatican City feels like, oh, come on, it's really part of Italy. Do you know what I mean? Whereas Monaco really does feel different to France. Does it? Have you been? Yeah, well, I've been to the casino for a night out, yeah. And does it not feel like France? Because the Vatican, being like the Pope's big golden house, sounds less like Italy than Monaco appears to be from my distant perception. I guess it's more the point that everyone in Vatican City has got there via Italy, haven't they? Whereas I guess some people in Monaco do really live there uh, and have families there and there's a, a Monegas tradition. And yeah, you do notice it. I, I mean, loads of things are different to France, but like one thing is the police presence. There's police everywhere. I think it's the most really? policed proportion of the population place in the world. What are they afraid of? Well, they're walking around with uh, like Rolexes and diamond necklaces and stuff. I think it's basically that. So there's that. And then also there's just English is spoken everywhere. I mean, I don't know what their official language is. It probably is French. But I mean, people are speaking English everywhere, including the police. So that's different, obviously, to the south of France. The official language is French. Right. uh, But there's multiple languages present, Italian being one, but also local ones like Monegasque and Provencal. I mean, it just has an international feel. It's like being in an airport or something. In fact, all the designer clothes and designer shops really do make you feel like you're in an airport. Oh, brilliant. Sounds very pointful going there. Oh, it's fun to visit. I mean, I'm fascinated by small states. Like, that's one of the reasons we got married in Gibraltar, actually. I just, I find the idea of, like, a little place clinging on to a heritage that's, you know, now really idiosyncratic is just kind of fascinating to be amongst. I just also think about the practicality. Like, if there's 38,000 people, absolutely tiny area, even if you want to go there to spend your 10 years trying to become a citizen... Presumably the housing market is not going to be that busy. (laughs) (laughs) They were going to build into the sea, like build a whole new island to join it on to Monaco so that they could expand the land a bit. Wow. Dubai style. Dubai style, yeah. And then that fell through um, at the time of the banking crisis. But they are now, I think, or they were before this pandemic, but I'm sure they're still continuing with it, doing something a bit smaller, but it's like a kind of... It's essentially a reef where they're going to put three skyscrapers so that they can put another, you know, whatever it is, 5,000 luxury penthouses in because there's nowhere else to buy anymore. I wonder what the rules are about boats, boat living. Yeah, you can actually moor a yacht fairly cheaply, I think. (laughs) But, I mean, you've got to have the million pound yacht in the first place to moor, haven't you? That's the thing. Got to be able to get the mooring as well. The coastline is... uh... Three kilometres long, so world's shortest coastline. There you go, it's the world's world's lot of things, isn't it? Thank you for not picking me up on saying that they were going to build a skyscraper full of penthouses. I mean, obviously that is logistically impossible. That's probably how they sell it though, isn't it? Be very flat. (laughs) You know, I always thought that loft would be like the top part of a building, but the way that loft apartments are sold now, it's really an aesthetic, isn't it? So maybe penthouse is similar. Loft style living. Yeah. Yeah. Penthouse style living with the convenience of the ground floor. (laughs) (laughs) Do I love so much about Tom Waits? Is it his gravelly voice or his gravelly face? Or the instruments he made from metal plates? And an anvil and a saucepan. If you love him so much, then make a podcast about him. I have. Build a Squarespace site so you can tout him. I did. And one day there may be an award even your show can win. It already did. Fuck you both. Thanks very much to Squarespace for sponsoring Answer Me This and for making it very easy for you to build and run your own website. So easy. How many times must we tell you how easy it is? Now is the time. Go for it. No better time than No, no better time than the present to go to squarespace.com slash answer and check out their astonishing suite of tools. Or their astonishing sweet, sweet tools. So get there. Toot sweet. <laughs> <laughs> What you can do on Squarespace is you can choose an award-winning design template upon which to base your website, or several, and then just pick the one you like. Use their drag-and-drop tools to add features. They do some great domain buying options as well. And you can flip between mobile and desktop versions of the website you're building as well. So you don't have to actually get your phone out of your pocket to see what it looks like on your phone. You can see what it looks like on your phone on your desktop, if you see what I mean. Go and play around with the two-week free trial. Head to squarespace.com answer. And then when you're ready to launch, receive a 10% discount off your first purchase of a website or domain if you use our code ANSWER. And now a question from Isabel, which she has recorded as a voice memo and sent in. Hi, Helen and Ali. I'm a trans woman, and I've been having some difficulty figuring out how to talk to people while wearing a mask. At the best of times, it's a challenge communicating with people face-to-face. I'm generally read as a woman, and people consistently use she-her pronouns for me until I talk. Then they'll get confused and misunderstand what I say. Now that I'm wearing a mask whenever I talk to anyone outside the house, it's even worse. 
The extra muffling means I have to repeat myself a number of times during simple interactions. So Helen and Ali answer me this. How do I make myself comfortable communicating with people while wearing a mask? I think on this way up what makes you more uncomfortable, is it not communicating at all or communicating like this via a mask? And if the answer is the latter, then keep that in mind. I mean, it's still the best option for you, isn't it, to communicate rather than not? My research suggests that all genders are having problems with the clarity of speech wearing masks. So while there is the the specificity of you being perhaps misgendered, which uh, sucks, the masks are absorbing like quite a lot of voice frequency and removing the social cues we get from people's facial expressions from their lips. Also, people are reporting voice fatigue from having to project more. So there's like some quite simple things that, as a person who communicates in speech for a job, I might suggest. One is that you speak quite quickly. Mm. So I'd slow down and just maybe repeat yourself a bit more so that people's brains are able to catch up more to what you're saying because they have less other information to go on because half your face is uh, obscured. Yeah, I'm really finding that myself. Like smiling is something that I really rely on when I'm being quite abrupt for customer service. (laughs) Like if I'm saying something where (laughs) if you looked at the words, you'd think, Christ, why are you going up and being so blunt? I'm often doing it with a smile and I get away with it. And I've noticed that I'm not getting away with it. Like people find me rude. I've really noticed that recently. Mm. And so I'm, I'm trying to be more concise. Like forget the flowery stuff. But just say what you want in simple words. It is a change, isn't it, in how we communicate? Because our brains are trying to interpret things that we find difficult to interpret. So you just really need to simplify the communication. So simplify constructions. Try not to loop back to complicated subclauses. Train yourself out of word salad. Pause more so that people's brains can catch up. Use hand gestures to make up for the lack of facial cues for expression. And then... Face the person directly if you can. Uh, It's just a bit easier for them to focus on you. If the problem is loud places and you're able to move the conversation to a corner rather than the middle of a room, say, so there's just like slightly fewer sensory inputs becoming involved. And maybe look at some YouTube videos for just like actors who've had to do classes in mask acting because that's something that goes back through actor training to the beginning of theatre basically yes and that might actually help with her question i mean you've given some very sound advice but actually the question is how do i feel more comfortable a lot of that frankly is psychological as you acknowledge in the way you phrased it it's about how you feel about it isn't it and you're you're projecting the anxiety of how you might feel based on how someone else might perceive you which may or may not be there that's all stuff you can NLP adjust yourself. I have um, cis female friends who are frequently misgendered and one of them says wearing large earrings has been a big thing for her in not getting misgendered anymore. <laughs> so maybe that's an option with the mask if you can get them to work with the elastics. I- I'll tell you what the real problem is for me is actually just smelling my own breath. It's disgusting. Yeah, although it does make me feel relieved that other people are less likely to smell it because it's trapped <laughs> yeah. with me. Yeah. And also if I have things in my teeth, they don't know. That's true. But I mean, now I'm aware that my breath smells disgusting. I'm Well, I'm buying more mouthwash, let's put it that way. Our next question is from Susan in Susan's voice. Helen and Ollie and Martin back there in the echo chamber. I am a seamstress, a very good seamstress. I am not humble. I have a theory that the sewing machine as we know it in general design, must have been designed by a left-handed person. Because I believe that the design of the sewing machine is much more suited to a left-hander than a right-hander. So, Helen and Ali, was it a left-handed person who invented the sewing machine? Do you know what she means, Helen? I do, because in the design of sewing machines, you have the sort of body of it on the right, where the engineers and then on the left you have the needle and that's where you're pushing the fabric through so i guess what she means is it seems like your left hand is a lot more dominant in guiding the fabric even though your right hand sort of has a platform on which to do that more also on the right there's a lot more buttons and levers to deal with so Mm. there are a lot more complex procedures where if your right hand is non-dominant you might have more difficulty doing that with precision. Although I am a left-hander, 
And obviously, you I've are. never used a sewing machine because obviously. Well, that's not obvious to anyone but you. You could. Well, I'm generally cat candid and injure myself using any kind of adventurous technology. <laughs> so, sewing machines definitely not something that appeal to me. Is it because it's a right hand normative world, though, and the inventions have been constructed so that you're at a disadvantage as a left hander? Possibly. So I'm curious as to whether or not I would fare better with a sewing machine. But what I was going to say is actually, in the right-hand dominated world, as a left-hander, you do learn to do more with your right hand than right-dominated people learn to do with their left, if you see what I mean. like Because so many oh, yeah. bits of apparatus are operated with the right hand. My brother Andy is left-handed, but he plays guitar with his right hand and he plays cricket with his right hand. Yeah. Like you can get guitars and cricket bats that have been made the other way but it's just easier not to well it's like i use a mouse with my right hand because that's how i was taught even though it would make more sense for me for it to be on the left and you could change that i could but it, i've tried it and it's weird like now i just don't want to well also the mouse buttons are the wrong way around so i have to get a special left-handed mouse and i don't know but it's interesting with the qwerty keyboard like some of the most common letters like a s and e are left-handed letters and with a weak finger yeah anyway sewing machines other people have susan's theory that left-handers invented sewing machines. The thing is, like, it's not even clear who invented the sewing machine because it's one of those things where, like, well, one person came up with the first sewing machine, but then someone else, like, changed it in this way. And it's like so many people have got patents on different parts of the machines and and the different ways that they work. Mm -hmm. And so some people are like, well, uh, Isaac Singer of Singer Sewing Machines must have been left-handed. But it's very hard to get confirmation on that. I did learn, though, that he had over 20 recognised children, which sounds like a lot. He'd be great in the Monaco royal family. But the reason why the sewing machine is this way is because it was originally hand cranked. So your right hand would have been turning a crank because ah. there wasn't the like electrical engine. There were some foot treadle machines as well, but there was still like a lot of work for the right hand to do. And because it's a right hand normative world of inventors, that was why it was that. And then right. the design just evolved. So it's, it's, I mean, you look at early sewing machines and they're very recognizably similar to the machines of today so they just kept the bodies the same way and i don't know if there are many machines manufactured that have been flipped because manufacturers are probably going to look at the proportion of people who are left-handed sewists and be like it's just not worth like creating all these new factory molds to flip it Hmm. but what i couldn't understand is why left-handed scissors are not more common because loads of people buy scissors scissors are so useful why is it that's still so hard for people like you ollie to have scissors that have been designed for you it's hardly like left-handers are such a rarity. Well, they do exist. But again, 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 do, I've but... grown up in a world where, because I know most scissors favour the right hand, I just automatically start cutting stuff with my right hand, which is one of the reasons probably that I am cag-handed, yeah. It's unfair. Yeah. Unfair. It bloody is. Five-star hotel. It had an omelette station, a multitude of pools, but 30 quid for parking, WTF. There's Ethernet, not Wi-Fi like it's 1998 But there was a swim-up bar in the rooftop pool Three-star hotel A bit more down to earth They did still have a pool But it was full of kids Two-star hotel A lot more down to earth They also had a pool But it was full of dogs one star hotel There's a body in the pool Answer me this holiday All the fun of travelling with none of the stinky toilets or frightening food Out now at answermethispodcast.com slash albums Thanks to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring Answer Me This and if you like Answer Me This because you think oh, I love learning through online means then The Great Courses Plus is, like, imagine, it's like Answer Me This, but with people who actually know stuff. <laughs> but legit. And can explain it in depth. <laughs> Woo. Yeah, they have more than 11,000 lectures available for you to watch on demand. They've got lectures about history, cookery, dog maintenance, business, <laughs> philosophy. Well, I've been watching uh, Understand Opera uh, this month. Really? You've been going for a lot of fancy ones. Wine, opera. Yeah, well, I suppose that just you know, indicates where I feel like my knowledge could be expanded. With opera, you know, I love musicals, as you know, 
But I have a bit of a blind spot on opera, even though I know that one leads to the other. And I always feel a bit of a philistine around it. So I thought I'd try understand opera. And I've learned loads just from the first sort of hour or so of it. He sort of contextualises a lot of the uh, histrionics that I find a bit distracting now. You know, when you watch it, it just seems like a lot of screaming. He really explains that that stuff was, well, A, because of the size of the auditoria they were trying to fill with their voices, um, and B, because it's such an old medium, like it it pre-exists Shakespeare's Hamlet, for example. Hmm. It was almost like a special effect, basically. Like It was like going to watch an IMAX movie going to the opera. You were supposed to be lifted off your feet by sensation in a way that people now look to movies and and the internet to do. So have you started listening to opera differently as a result of doing the course? Well, yes, but so far only the operas that he's explained. Like, that's the only thing I'd say is, like, he explains brilliantly. Like, he'll play a bit from Mahler and then explain what's going on. So now if I hear that thing from Mahler, I'll be like, ah, I know this about it. Oh, so you can at least watch Frasier with a totally different set of ears. (laughs) But obviously the idea is that then you can go and encounter an opera that you've never heard or seen before and somehow interpret it better. You know, and I'm not really ready for that because you realise that without the synopsis, without the context on a lot of it, you still are a little bit in the dark. But maybe that's what I've learned is that you have to put the work in a little bit and that's fine. That's the medium. Like that, That's why I was struggling with it. Education is not instant. Exactly. But because it's Great Courses Plus, you can do it at your own pace and you could return to it down the line and refresh yourself. And right now they have a limited time offer just for our listeners. You get an entire month of access for free. Get started by signing up today at our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash answer. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash answer. Here's a question from Chris from Bath who says, Last night I was flicking through Paul McCartney's back catalogue, imagining what his COVID cancelled Glastonbury set would have included. I'm sure that'd be just the same as being there. (laughs) When I came across the album cover for Band on the Run, it's a photo of a group of escaped prisoners caught in a spotlight. The people include Paul and Linda McCartney, the horror actor Christopher Lee, 70s comedian Kenny Lynch, TV presenter Michael Parkinson and a free Parker pen, and most bizarrely, chef and politician Clement Freud, together with other people I don't recognise. Oscar-winning actor James Coburn, uh, professional boxer John Conte, and Denny Lane, who was actually in Wings. And by the way, Denny Lane, even though it's not his birth name, uh, astonishingly, he was not named after Penny Lane by the Beatles. That's just a coincidence. So, Ollie, answer me this. What's the story? How did they come up with such a random selection of people for the cover? Well, the context for the album, it's 1973, and just before recording the album, which was Wings' third album, uh, Henry McCullough, who was the guitarist, and Danny Sewell, who was the drummer, had just quit the group. So there were only three members left, two of which were married to each other. So, you know, it was an obvious target for the press if there was a picture of the band on the front. You know, it's a bit like Take That now. It just looks a bit sad, doesn't it, when there's three of them? Yeah. So, yeah, I think partly to avoid that idea that it was just McCartney's solo project, basically, you know, he roped in his wife and some mates, the idea was to say, we're a band, we really are a band. And Clement Freud's in the band. Well, no, the title's a bit of a playful pun on the fact that some of the members have just left, you know, band on the run. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it was like, here's the band and it's a totally different band to the actual band. It's it's just a kind of playful way of addressing that issue. And the idea came from photographer Clive Arrowsmith, who uh, was a mate of John and Paul's from art school, uh, just brainstorming basically what, I mean, they'd written and recorded the song Band on the Run already. That having happened, you know, what would Band on the Run look like in visual form? I think it was Linda's idea, actually, that you'd have this kind of classic Hollywood prison breakout. She's a photographer. She had visual instincts. And then they had this idea that, okay, well, who's in the band? What about all these other kind of various celebrities? Wouldn't that be fun? I think that was also partly a nod to Sergeant Pepper, because obviously the front cover of that had various celebrities alive and dead. And I think Paul had been, he'd never admit this ever, obviously, but I'd been, he'd been slightly bruised by the fact that his first two albums weren't very well received, whereas John's were... So I think there was an element of like nodding to Sgt. Pepper and saying to Beatles fans, look, here's an album that you'll like. It's a bit like Sgt. Pepper. And it is the most like Sgt. Pepper of everything that he did after the Beatles. And unfortunately, in terms of why these people were chosen, why Michael Parkinson is in Mm. the same picture as Clement Freud, um, it is as dull but also intriguing as they were genuinely Paul and Linda's mates. Like they had their numbers in their Rolodex and that's who they could get to come to Osterley Park on a rainy day in 1973 and that's it i mean it is a completely random selection of famous friends they had they'd all been drinking with each other and partying that whole day before they took the picture um and i I found a blog that uh, clive arrowsmith had written about trying to take the picture and it was really difficult apparently because 
to get them all to pose in the exact position he wanted, they all needed to stand still, mm. but they'd all been partying, so they couldn't. And there's quite a lot of crouching as well, which makes the thighs tremble after a bit. Exactly. And, and the reason they had to stand still was because he'd got the wrong light and Whoa. the wrong film stock. Oh, Clive! <laughs> so it's like a super long exposure, like one of those Victorian photos. Well, only two seconds, but that's a long two time seconds. when you're taking 24 shots. Yeah, if you're so, kind of you in know. the stress position, crouched down, doing a gun pose <laughs> with a hangover. And it was daylight film, which is why the picture has a yellowy tint on it. Huh. He'd accidentally bought daylight film rather than nighttime film and was too embarrassed to say anything. And luckily, Paul liked it. <laughs> well, if you don't like it, then you just put it in black and white and that takes care of that particular problem. It's far from the weirdest uh, Beatles spin-off cover art, in my view. Uh, that would be Ringo Starr's 1999 album, I Want to Be Santa Claus. Please send us an email, we love to keep in touch. If you send us an email, we'll like you very much. It's podcast at googlemail.com That's podcast at googlemail.com So please send us an email, or we won't know you're there. And if we like your email, we'll read it out on air. Here's a question from Ian from Illinois who says, I'm going into my freshman year of college this fall and my school is going to campus with safety precautions. One of those is that all the dorm rooms are single occupancy, even if they're usually a double. Hence removing, as far as I'm concerned, the, the least appealing thing about American universities as viewed through the lens of cinema. Like I, The idea of like having to have a room share when you're 20 used to horrify me. Oh, a friend of mine went to Warwick University in Britain, Ollie, and had to share a room. Really? Yeah, no fucking thanks. On campus, not on a house On share. campus in their first year, and I don't think they knew until they turned up. Whoa. I just think, I'm 20 years old, leave me alone, let me masturbate at will. Wow. Ian says, I was very excited for this. Having two beds and two desks would be great. Mm -hmm. However... I've just learned I'm in a room that is already a single, meaning one bed, desk, and half the space. Well, kind of. I mean, I see what you mean. It is half double the space, but I mean, it's the space, mm -hmm. isn't it? It's the space they attribute to a single person. So it's not like getting half the space a normal single person would get. Given that I'll be spending a lot of time in my room because of online classes, I've already requested a room change, but I doubt it'll go through. So, Ollie, answer me this. How would you suggest I manage being trapped in an even tinier room than I was expecting? I don't know, put up a lot of artwork? I also really like those sort of stick-on murals that people have where it's like <laughs> a giant blown-up photo of mountains or a forest or something, and I think those can really make a small room seem much bigger. I also think that American versions of small rooms are a lot larger nonetheless yes. than our small rooms of Britain. Well, that's it. So like at our college, which all three of us went to, they really were just a box. It was helped by the fact that there was a glass wall, architecturally designed glass yeah. wall. So you saw out and you did get that view, but it was a small, small room. Do you have any tips from those days? I, I just remember kind of like multi-purposing everything. So like the bed was also the sofa like my book storage was also what I'd use during workouts. You know, you just, everything has five uses. I think having nice lighting is important, like lamps, because if you just have the choice of harsh lighting or no lights, then it makes things worse. Whereas if you can have these sort of little pools of light in the evening, that's a lot more appealing. Get a lava lamp, get a lava lamp, get a lava lamp. Yeah, it's changed his life. <laughs> when I was living outside of college i had a really small and very dark room with very little natural light and i painted the walls this like dark teal color which made them feel further away made them recede like the night sky yeah don't paint them bright red i had a friend that did that no. and i don't think it helped his mental health it, it does seem a bit like you'd be living inside an organ <laughs> but martin you had uh, a little room as your childhood bedroom I remember there yeah. just being a giant poster of Tori Amos, but what other tips do you have for spending a lot of time in a room that's barely bigger than a bed? Well, I always had a giant poster of Slash to even things like... My parents put a lot of effort into it being, like, nice colours. So I had, like, green curtains and a nice green carpet, and that felt quite restful. I don't really remember. Like, most of that room was taken up by shelving mm. and cupboards and the bed, and so there wasn't a huge amount of space. But, I mean, I was the sort of kid that just sat on my bed and read things, so... um you know, that worked okay. You could get mirrors on opposite walls, so you've got that infinite mirror effect, Ian. Some of my favourite bedrooms have been the smaller ones. Like, actually, when you yeah. stay in a really big room, if you're not filling it, it can feel really daunting. And I was I was speaking to a guy mm. who does property guardianship when you live in an old office block or something, and he was saying, actually, it's really weird having loads of space. Like, when you've got a whole loft to live in, you end up just using a corner of it anyway because it just feels, like, haunted of <laughs> a huge space. Mm. Ian's predicament is not just sleeping, it's that he'll be working in it. 
quite a lot. Yeah. And will he feel more trapped? Yes. And and the particular circumstance at the moment, obviously, with the pandemic going on is is a unique set of things, isn't it? Because normally we'd say, well, just go out a lot, you know, go, go spend all, eat all your meals in the cafe, but that may not be possible. Um, so, I mean, it is an issue, but I do think it's probably worse in your head than it will be in actuality when you're there. I think there are ways to make small rooms feel, like I say, cosy rather than um, constricted. And I think you're only thinking this because in your mind, there was the thought of having a double room all to yourself. Yes. If you had been in one of those under normal circumstances, there would have been another person in it taking up more than just physical space, but mental space. That's an advantage. Also, Illinois in winter, pretty chilly. Mm. Easier to keep a a smaller room warm. Well, if you've ever lived in an incredibly small space, uh, maybe you have advice for Ian about how he'll be living in his probably not that small space, in fact. Um, Do share. Yeah, there's an Ear Hustle episode about making your prison cell a little more festive yeah put it in context well that brings us to the end of this episode of answer me this but if you have any advice for today's question is or if you have a question yourself then please do supply it in the form of an email or a voice memo that you've recorded then attached to an email our contact details are on our website answer me this podcast.com you can also head over to answer me this store.com to buy our six exclusive albums most recently our new release for 2020 answer me this home entertainment Uh, about uh, TV and movies and stuff you can stream at home and things like that, uh, available now exclusively on that website for Pay What You Like. And also at AnswerMeThisStore.com, there's the Answer Me This archive, episodes 1 to 200, the first five years of the show, available for merely 79 pence each. Halfway through the month, we will drop one of those archive episodes into your feeds with a little commentary from us with about a, all the things that we wish were not public domain. With a little 10 minutes self-flagellation from Helen <laughs> to introduce uh, it. But if you want to hear some uh, contemporary work that Helen is marginally more proud of, Helen... Well, The Illusionist and Veronica Mars Investigations and my other podcasts, I'm sure there's regrettable stuff in them. But that's the thing. You put content out into the world and then you grow as a person, hopefully, and then you hate your older self. Ollie, what's happening in the Man Podcast Empire in the month of September. Yeah, I do five podcasts. You can discover them all at ollieman.com. And one of them is The Week Unwrapped, which is my current affairs show. And the format of that show is we don't talk about the same news everyone else is discussing. We talk about the stories that you've missed. And you can find that by searching for The Week Unwrapped on your podcast app of choice. Is that weekly? It is, hence the name. Well, you might just pick a week and unwrap it. <laughs> the week we're unwrapping this week is, uh, yeah, the week of September the 5th from 1971. No, it's not that, no. Classic week. It is It is the week's news, uh, digested and repackaged in, in ways that are uh, novel. And Martin has recently unleashed a new series into the world. Yeah, there's a, a podcast series called Maddie's Sound Explorers, which is a science podcast for young people, uh, 7 to 10, but we've had younger listeners as well, and much older listeners. With the Maddie Moat from CB With Maddie Moat. Do you know Martin's done a show with Maddie Moat? Did you know? That will mean nothing to most of you, but very exciting for anyone who's a parent of a toddler. <laughs> yeah, or a toddler themselves. They're yeah. a lot of very excited yeah. Toddler, toddlers on my timeline at the moment. Every parent I know, or every child of a parent I know, seems absolutely beside themselves about this show yeah it's a it's a it's about science and every episode we use the sounds of science and and uh, ideas from the expert we interview to make a new piece of music so there's a song at, every, at the end of every episode uh, singing about thunder or bees or catchy shit about where, bees. where rain comes from yeah it's a lot of fun excellent stuff we'll be back with a fresh new episode of answer me this on the first thursday of next month so please do join us then bye, bye.